If you go to the Smithsonian in D.C., uh, you can find this little red book. It's, it's bound with red leather, uh, and it's called the Jefferson Bible. Thomas Jefferson uh, famously uh, took a Bible and literally took razor blades and scissors and paste and cut out all of the parts with miraculous dealings with demons, uh, with healings, and kept just the kernel of moral teaching that he found to be helpful. Um, and he took it actually in multiple languages. Uh, there's, it's like Latin and then a couple of, and then another language, uh, and pasted it into this little red book and kept it with himself and eventually published it. And it, it was called The Life and Teachings of Jesus of Nazareth reflective more of Thomas Jefferson than it was of Jesus himself, of course. Um, when we come to talking about the miracles of Jesus, we all have our own kind of predispositions um, and assumptions. Uh, maybe you're really into this. Maybe these are the parts of the Bible that really key into you. Or maybe you're a skeptic like me, and you're like, ah, oh, this just doesn't feel like it has a, a place in my reality. Um, whatever it is, Jesus asks us to check it at the door. So when I go to preach the word of God, I aim to make a sermon that will make Thomas Jefferson as uncomfortable as possible. Um, because it turns out in the Gospels that uh, it's not the teachings, it's not that Jesus has the te his teachings and then his miracles separate. Uh, the miracles are teachings, and uh, the teachings are supernatural miracles. Right? It's all of one piece. And so we're going through the Gospel of Luke and just marching through miracle, 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 miracle. Um, and looking at what Jesus says about who he is through these miracles. What do these reveal about who he is and what he's up to in the world? Those are the two most essential questions we can ask. Who is Jesus Christ today? What is he up to in the world? And this morning, we're going to walk through this account of Jesus' uh, miracle in the region of the Gerasenes. Uh, and it stirs up all kinds of questions that at least I have about the extent of Jesus' authority. Uh, are there places that are like outside of his, his turf, that are too, too far away for him to work adequately? Uh, are there some problems that are too big? that those people must manage on their own? Believe it or not, I think we all ask these questions, but we'll get to that. I want to say something first about the place, the problem, and then the miracle. And along the way, we're going to talk about demons and swine, so it's going to be a good time this morning. But first, let's pray. Holy Spirit, I ask um, that through our own meager efforts at listening, and my own, my own meager effort at speaking, that somehow, by your miracle, that we would come into contact with your word, that, you, that we would hear what you're saying, um, that our eyes and our ears would be receptive, and that we would be changed. I pray especially that you would give us illumination by your Holy Spirit to look into the corners of our lives where we do not believe that you are truly Lord, where we think we have to manage it, and would you give us the grace to repent of that and allow your healing presence in? We pray this in your name. Amen. So first, the place. Uh, at this point in Luke's gospel, it's already become clear that Jesus has authority among the Jews. He's been traversing these small towns along the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. 
That's up in like the butler of ancient Israel, right? Uh, it's way north. Uh, and he's traversing these small towns along the northern edge and healing and doing all kinds of miracles. And he's amassing this incredible following. People are flocking to this guy. There's energy and there's life and there's movement in the air. Um, and I think it might be help just to, it helped just to place things. Um, the Sea of Galilee is roughly the same size as the Pittsburgh metropolitan area, okay? Uh, 64.4 square miles for the Sea of Galilee. Uh, the metropolitan area of Pittsburgh is 58.3 square miles. So think of Pittsburgh in your mental map. Um, Jesus is going between, Fo- he's like in Fox Chapel, and then he's over in like Gibsonia, and then he's over in Ross Township, and then he's over in Bellevue, you know, these northern edge things, and all of a sudden, boom, down to Homestead. <laughs> like, anybody's been home, ho- no offense if you're from Homestead, but like, you know, there's Ken- you can hear Kennywood in the distance, and then a couple of raccoons who are tearing each other's throats out. Um, I'm going to get in trouble for that. Um, but now... So Jesus and a few of his disciples, they get in the boat and they go to Homestead. Uh, no, they go through this massive windstorm on the lake, different story, and they end up in the country of the Gerasenes. Uh, and it's at, Luke says that this is opposite Galilee. And he doesn't just mean geographically opposite. It definitely is geographically opposite, northeast to southwest-ish. Um, but also everything about this place is opposite of what he just came from. There was energy and life and vitality and a movement and following back there. And now here, there's him and however many disciples he can fit in the boat. And that's it. And this place is really creepy. I don't know if you've ever been to a place that just gives you the creeps for whatever reason. Uh, This place is creepy. They land on the shores, out in the wilderness, away from the town, It's hilly, and there's a cliff that leads down into the sea. And there's probably tombs in the rocky hillside there um, where the people kept their dead. The only sign of life you can see here is a herd of pigs, which is a symbol of uncleanliness and and godlessness in ancient Jewish society. Um, Ancient Jews had no business raising swine. And so we realize immediately that whoever lives here They're raising unclean animals. They're not following in the ways of Yahweh. And the narrative invites us to honestly ask this question. Can Jesus do anything here? Is this the wrong landscape for him? Right? He belongs in these other maybe more Jewish towns where there's movement and energy. um, And it seems like, you know, his spirit is moving. But now we're down in Homestead. We're down in the Gerasene wilderness, and this is a different story. This is a barren place. I wonder if you've ever asked that question about places in your own life. Are there places in your world that when you really think about it on a subconscious level, you consider to be beyond Jesus' territory? Maybe it's your workplace uh, where you talk about and hear about grace on Sundays, but you know as well as anyone that in your workplace you live and die by the strength of your own merits, right? You've got to get ahead or else you're going to get thrown under the bus and trampled. Maybe it's your kid's school, that, the most terrifying place in the world to a parent. 
um, where, where they go in and you never know like, what influences could be coming at them and it's utterly out of your control. How can God possibly be present there? Or maybe, and this is the case increasingly for a lot of people in the West, it's the entire Monday through Saturday and sometimes Sundays. Um, three, three Sundays a month, right? Uh, there's no presence. But then there's that one Sunday a month that's like religious time. Uh, where we come into a special building and we say uh, special things, we talk in a certain way, we dress in a certain way, but it's all a little bit detached from the real-world reality that we inhabit out here. Real life operates on a different set of rules, what Jack London called the law of club and fang. (laughs) Sometimes the Thanksgiving dinner table can feel like the law of club and fang. So that's the first question we're asking when Jesus steps out of the boat into this creepy landscape. Does he have authority here, too? Does he have authority in all of your life? Or is it just like little compartments? The second question is about the problem that confronts him. The problem. Jesus gets out of the boat, and he's immediately met by this man who's in every respect out of his mind. We learn that this guy is from the city, but now he runs around naked and lives among the tombs like a wild animal. It's a kind of living death. Uh, And the cause of this tragic scenario is clear. He had what? Demons. Luke says that many a time, demonic spirits would seize him, in other words, take control of his body and send him on a tear of chaos and destruction, and these fits of demonic possession made him to be such a public menace and nuisance that they literally kept him under guard, they put a guard around him, and bound him up with shackles, with chains. And it's worth noting um, that this mention of demons uh, is not in the Bible like a symbol or a metaphor. It's actually built into our modern parlance to talk about our demons, right? Uh, as, as in, and what we mean often when we say, like, I have a lot of demons to wrestle with is that we, I have some problems, I have some, uh, some bad memories, I have some trauma that I'm, that I'm wrestling through. I'm, and so it almost can get, become, like, personified. But, uh, when Luke says this man had demons, he doesn't mean he had problems. He doesn't mean that he had mental illness. Some modern scholars have tried to explain away all of Jesus' miracles as sort of these moments where uh, Jesus, who's a fully present man, uh, encounters someone with great love, and so in that encounter with another human being, they're healed of their mental illness. Um, I don't buy it. The gospel writers had no intention of writing like that, um, and that goes against the entire grain of the point that they're trying to make. When Luke says demons, he means demons. This really sticks in the craw of a lot of people today. Uh, Rudolf Bultmann, uh, the German scholar, wrote around 1920, um, he said this, We cannot use electric lights and radios and, in the event of illness, avail ourselves of modern medical and clinical means and, at the same time, believe in the spirit and wonder world of the New Testament. So he's saying that we're modern people. All this demon stuff, all this miracle stuff, we're beyond that. Uh, The two are just completely different realities. We know better. We're smarter than the ancients were. 
But it turns out that even in our modern scientific age, many of the best experts in psychiatry and mental health acknowledge that there are some cases where there's something more than just mental health going on, where there's something supernatural. Uh, take, for instance, Jeffrey Lieberman. He's the chair of Columbia University's psychiatry department. He's one of the guys who literally helped write the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, also known as the DSM-5. When someone is struggling with mental illness, as most everyone after 2020 is, um, this is the book that is used to diagnose, right? Um, this is the one of the guys who wrote that book. If there is an expert on mental health who would know the difference between some kind of supernatural occurrence and merely natural mental phenomena, it would be this guy. Agreed? This is what he said in the 2018 article in The Atlantic. He said that when he encounters uh, these things, most, the majority of cases turn out to be mental health issues, but, quote, throughout his career, he's seen a few cases that could not be explained in terms of normal human physiology or natural laws. In other words, you don't know your reality as well as you think you do. When the word of God speaks, you just need to like listen to what he's saying. Um, check our presuppositions at the door. It shouldn't really surprise us if we're steeped in the scriptures that there's some kind of other thing going on here. The Bible is clear that spiritual beings exist who hate God and actively seek to hurt people. Um, in some cases, like in this man from the Gerasenes, they seek to possess and deface the image of God, right? God created us humans to be uh, his image bearers, his representatives on the earth. And so, okay, so if the enemy wants to get at God, what's the most, what's the easiest way to do that? Mess with his image bearers, right? But this man, it turns out, is not just afflicted with one demon. He is a, he has a legion of demons. Uh, in Roman times, that's four to six thousand people in a legion. And so we're led to ask, is this problem too big for Jesus? We've seen him cast out demons and heal sick people up in the northern parts, but now he's in the Gar Gerasenes, and there's not just one demon, there's four to six thousand demons in a single human. Can you deal with this, Jesus? Maybe this is too much. Um, the ancients believed in localized deities. Uh, basically, it's sort of like street gangs, right? Um, Molech has the power here um, up on my turf, uh, but he can do certain things there, but he can't do other things. And then uh, if you're up in Philistia, like Dagon is the guy, right? Um, but he's probably not authoritative when you head south. Um, so there's like there's like sort of turf wars, and each, each tribe or people has their deity, and that deity has authority in their turf, but not in other turf. And so this particular instance, Jesus is crossing into another kind of turf. And the question is, is Jesus one God in a toolbox of gods? Is he one resource to be employed strategically and usefully, just like other resources? Or is he God? full stop. Because if he's God, full stop, then he's God in the first century, 
and he's God in the 21st century. He's God who has authority to cast out the Gerasene demoni demoniac. Demoniac? It's demoniac. Um, we can, you can take that up with me afterwards. But he's also God who has the power to do anything that he wills here and now in your life. So what happens? Jesus confronts this man and orders the demons out. And the man cries out and falls down, probably writhing on the ground before Jesus and says in a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. Then Jesus asks, what, what is your name? And he's not introducing himself. He's not like, Jesus Christ, good to meet you. Right? Uh, names were seen in the ancient world as sources of power. So saying, what is your name, is getting power over him. It's giving an order. He's saying to the gunman, drop your weapon. And the demon drops his weapon. Tells him his name, Legion. And then Jesus gives the demons permission to leave the man and go into a herd of pigs. And the pigs rush down the steep bank and are drowned in the Sea of Galilee. And from our modern perspective, especially if you're a fan of PETA, this might seem like animal cruelty, right? What did the poor piggies do uh, to offend Jesus? But remember, what did pigs represent to an ancient Jew? Uncleanness. This was a vile economic practice that these people who were on, in Jewish territory were taking on. They had been more influenced by the Hellenistic outside influences than they were by the God of Israel. They were sort of like straddling the fence, more on the side of the culture than they were on the side of their Lord. And so with a single word, Jesus eliminates everything unclean in this landscape. The pig trade is done for. The demons are gone. The scene is suddenly no longer creepy. Uh, it's like that restful calm that comes after a storm. You know what I'm talking about? Where you can sort of, like the water is still dripping down off of the leaves. And you can see it, how the, the storm's moved off into the distance. And there's this, this sense of peace. The birds start to chirp. And you know that everything is okay now the world can kind of start to begin to re-emerge. But notice, the townspeople are terrified. Uh, they're scared of Jesus because something has just shown up that's more powerful than the most powerful thing that they've ever seen, which was, I'm guessing, these demons. And I'm sure they're frustrated because he just, like, totally messed with their business, right? Uh, he wrecked their economy. Um, it turns out Jesus is bad for the economy in this case. But, and because they're so afraid, they're so fixated on what Jesus has just disrupted that they miss out on something glorious right before their eyes. And then what that is is the miracle. The miracle. What becomes of the demon-possessed man? I love this. This is so cool how Luke puts this. He puts on clothes. Who do you think gave him the clothes? Jesus and his disciples. They're the only other people out there, right? And they have a penchant for, like, giving people their tunics, <laughs> right? Uh, so they, they, he healed him, gave him clothes, and then he takes the po this man takes on the posture of an apprentice of Jesus. He sits at his feet. That's what Jesus' students did before their rabbi. 
The demon-possessed man is now a disciple of Jesus, sitting at his feet and learning. And the people of the surrounding country, uh, they ask Jesus to leave. They just miss out on this man who was lost and now is found. They don't even, they just gloss over it. They're too busy. They're too concerned about their pigs. And they ask Jesus to leave. And so he gets in the boat and goes. But not before one other action. Look at verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with Jesus. But Jesus sent him away. Jesus sent him away. What the heck, Jesus? Said, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he, the man, went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. For years I read this passage and thought that Jesus was just like being a jerk. It's like, this seems really arbitrary. Why'd you send this guy home? You want everybody to follow you, don't you? But except for this one guy. Like, I guess he's not cool enough to be in the club. What's the deal with this? Well, look at this. Uh, He tells him what? Go home and proclaim Go home and be an evangelist. You see how magnificent this is. Remember how we met this man. Uh, The demons had taken away his dignity and his very image-bearing humanity was taken away and he was living like a wild animal in the tombs. Shameful existence. Um, In the eyes of his peers, he had ceased to be a person and he'd become a problem that they had to manage. So he's driven from his home, he loses his home and his dignity, and he's living for nothing, no other reason than to simply be a host for these parasitic spirits. So, no home, no dignity, no vocation. What happens after he meets Jesus? Immediately, dignity is restored. And then what what else does Jesus return to him? He sends him home. Most people, most men would have been married back then. So imagine his family's reaction and having their, their, having their husband and father returned to them, right? That's my extrapolation, my imagination. It's not in the scripture that he was married. But still, I can't help but wonder. And then he gives him a vocation. He gives him a reason to live. This guy's not returning back to his lo- life with a zero-sum game. He is changed for the better. There's something that he exists in this world for. Here's the point. Jesus is in the business of redeeming everything. He's not afraid to disrupt stuff to make it better. And there's no place that's too far, and there's no problem that's too big for him. There's no place too far, and there's no problem too big for him. In the words of Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch theologian, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. So to close, I want to ask this. Is there a part of your life where you you just don't quite acknowledge or believe that Jesus has authority? Uh, do you have like, problems or re- broken relationships or struggles that are too big for him to fix? Is there a chronic sense of unhappiness that's too empty for him to fill? Uh, do you know people who are too hardened 
to enter into any kind of vibrant relationship with Jesus. You think to yourself, this person will never come to know God. Never. Too far. Too far gone. Maybe that's you. I can never have that authentic relationship. It's just too far. I've been through too much. Do you carry burdens that are too heavy for him to shoulder? Yes, I know that I need to trust God with this, but at the same time, I also need to micromanage everything. We all have these little pockets of unbelief, right? None of, no one in this room uh, believes thoroughly to the very core of us. We all have these little pockets. This is why repentance is a lifestyle, by the way. We're always uncovering things. So I want to invite you to look into those places, those little corners of your life where you have not let him in and have not acknowledged that he is Lord and ask, who do you think Jesus is? You see this like obscure first century miracle man who had to do, uh, he had power to do some obscure deeds and we enter a nice Victorian mansion on Sundays and tell stories about it? Or is he the crucified, risen, and ascended Lord of the universe who gets to call the shots in your life? And who, by the way, will not let you down? This is convicting to me. Um, You know, I I gotta be honest, I haven't figured this out. Uh, I got a lot of little pockets of unbelief in my own life. You know, I... But we need, to let, we need to bring our lives under the lordship of Christ because he's a good lord. I once had heard a friend say, uh, the good news is not that Jesus is lord, but the good news is that Jesus is lord. Get it? Like, it's not somebody else. It's this guy who's redeeming everything, who went to the cross for you, who actually cares about you, who's steering all things for the good of those who are called according to his good purposes. That's the guy who's in charge. Um, And so I realized this week as I was preparing this that this sermon is a call to prayer. It's a call to prayer. Um, What's in your life that isn't his? What's, What's burdening you this morning? What's making you feel exhausted and burned out? And isn't it time we we like let him deal with that? Because he can, he's actually capable. So I want, you, want to invite you to pray with me um, as we close and just invite Jesus to take the reins um, on the things in our life. Lord, we acknowledge that we um, have been striving and working and aching and groaning to try to hold it together. We put way too much effort into trying to keep up a facade Um, and there are moments and corners of our lives that are just unmanageable. And we need to throw up our hands and acknowledge that you're the only one who can handle it. Would you give us the faith to be able to acknowledge you as Lord? Would you give us the grace to lean on you and to trust you and to find that you are a good friend and a wonderful Savior? For those who are especially hurting and struggling, I pray for just extra mercy and grace and tenderness 
that you would meet them in this place as we come and take of your body and blood. In Jesus' name we pray.